There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Toxic Avengers Podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have Part 1 of my interview with Dr. Mark Mitchell, founder of the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. A medical doctor with a master's in public health, he is a longtime toxics and public health advocate. Dr. Mitchell currently works at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University, serving as the Director of State Affairs for the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health and Director of the Climate and Health Equity Fellowship Program. He previously served as the Deputy Director of the Kansas City-Missouri Health Department and Director of the Hartford Health Department in Hartford, Connecticut, before leaving to start the Hartford Environmental Justice Network, later renamed the Connecticut Coalition on Environmental Justice. In the first part of our interview, Mark discusses his current work on climate, health, and environmental justice, including educating and organizing medical health professionals. He then describes his childhood growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, and how the racism he experienced from an early age formed the path he took to become a doctor with a focus on the preventative side of medical practice and environmental stressors of health. Mark then describes some of his experiences while getting his master's in public health from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and his early work opposing the influence of the tobacco industry. As you'll hear in the interview, Mark is a great storyteller with a million stories to tell, and it was both a pleasure and an honor to speak with him. Here's part one of my conversation with Dr. Mark Mitchell, recorded in January. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Um, yeah, busy, busy, busy. Uh, uh, all of the things I've been working all of my life for have all sort of come together and, you know, uh, and are now in the headlines. And so I've been really busy trying to respond. And I'm now trying to build the next generation uh, of people to, uh, to do this work. Um, so... I've been. <laughs> so it sounds like this is what you're doing, too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fo- so great you say that, because that's exactly, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about. That's my, I mean, from a distance, that's my perception of, you know, your career arc is exactly that. Everything that you've been doing coming to uh, fruition, hopefully. Yeah, that's yeah, mostly. Mm-hmm. That, that's sort of an optimistic way of saying it, so hopefully, you know. We can be optimistic. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's, you know, and so now is the time, and uh, within the next, you know, five years, uh, things can potentially change uh, dramatically for the better, um, or or this opportunity can be squandered, and and so. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so you're in Connecticut. Do you yes, live in yeah, Connecticut? I live in Connecticut. Okay. And I work remotely for George Mason. University. So, if the pandemic ends, would you go down there to teach, or it would all all stay remote? It would all stay remote. I I was I've been working remotely for four years now, and so yeah. But but you know I would go you know I I go down there periodically. Or I used to go down there periodically, you know, uh, but not very often. How do you like the remote? I mean, it just I guess that works since you've been doing it for four years. Do you like it? Okay. Now that everything, you know, when I first started, we weren't doing um, a lot of Zoom, and now we're not doing anything else but Zoom. <laughs> but it, so it was a bit tough um, not seeing people and not seeing how they, you know, it, it was about tough communicating without actually seeing people. Yeah. Since we started talking about George Mason, which is kind of the current thing, say a little bit about, you know, exactly what you're doing. You, you're, I think you're wearing a couple of hats there, right, at the same time and covering several bases. Yes, I am working for 
George Mason uh, in a couple of positions. One is as the Director of State Affairs uh, for the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, and then the other as the Director of the Climate and Health Equity Fellowship Program. So take each of those whichever one first and just sort of break it down a little bit for you know what what that what that what that is and what that involves okay so let me frame it as um, uh, what I uh, say that I'm doing in this portion of my life one is organizing physicians and two is uh, trying to train the next generation of uh, people to take over the work that I've been doing on environmental justice and equity and health equity. So the at George Mason University, there's the Center for Climate Change Communications uh, that does research on perceptions and how to communicate about climate. They also work with Yale uh, to do a biannual or sorry, semi-annual um, survey of the public about their uh, perceptions on climate. And as they were doing this, they were finding out that the health message was the message that moved more people uh, to act on climate than any other message, and that it worked across the political spectrum, more often with liberals, but but it also worked with conservatives better than any other message. And then they also found that it mattered who the messenger was and that health professionals are uh, the most trusted profession. You know, nurses, doctors, and pharmacists are, are typically in the top five most trusted uh, professions. And that um, when they talked about the health effects of climate that they're seeing in their patients, that has sort of depoliticized the issue. And so what we do is we organize uh, physicians to talk about, you know, what they're seeing in their patients, the health effects of, of climate um, and climate change. And so I actually uh, invented a mnemonic uh, to help me remember uh, what the health effects are of climate. And the mnemonic is um, heat wave. Uh, where the H stands for direct heat effects, um, uh, heat illnesses. The E in heat wave is for exacerbation of cardiac and respiratory illnesses. The A is for asthma. The T is for traumatic injuries. Um, and those vary a lot from different parts of the country. You know, in the West, it's from inhalation, uh, lung damage from inhalation of the wildfires. Uh, in the East, it can be from slips and falls on the snow and the uh, increased amount of uh, snow and, and back injuries from shoveling snow. And then in the um, South, the hurricanes and the flooding and, and also in the central, in the upper Midwest, um, we also have, they're seeing more injury from tornadoes. Flooding. And well, we're, we're, the tornadoes are actually moving east of the Mississippi and they're becoming winter tornadoes and night tornadoes. And so they're a lot more deadly uh, than they had been before. And so it's particularly in the mid South, which for those of you who aren't from the mid South uh, is Tennessee <laughs> uh, and, and Kentucky sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, so we study, so the, uh, T and heat wave, yeah, heat wave is traumatic injury. And then the W in the heat wave is for water and foodborne illness. The second A is for allergies, increased allergy season, uh, increased potency of allergens. And the V is for vector-borne diseases, uh, and the E is for, uh, emotional and mental health. Uh, effects. And so there are other health effects, but those are the major ones that we see uh, across the country. How long did that take to kind of move those letters around? You must be an incredible Scrabble player. No, uh, I, uh, no, I don't play Scrabble. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, no time. Uh, right. No time to do that. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, it, it didn't take that long. I, but then I started changing it to you know, so I now a, a poster 
about the health effects of climate. And then I've now focused, you know, more on health equity. So I have another one on uh, how climate affects low-income people and people of color uh, disproportionately in that same one-page uh, heat wave uh, poster. What are what are some of those? Whether it's a mnemonic or not, I mean, that's a very important, obviously, part of the whole right. thing, so, the equity impact. So say talk about that a little bit. Right. So that's what I focus on. I focus on uh, the equity impacts. You know, who is most likely to be affected by heat, um, you know, as climate changes, um, uh, you know, those without air conditioning, uh, elderly, urban shut-ins, um, uh, you know, more likely to be a person of color who uh, uh, tell me about asthma um, in Connecticut, where I live, two thirds of the air pollution is from transportation. And in my neighborhood, uh, I live in Hartford and in my neighborhood, uh, about half of the households don't have automobiles yet. We have some of the highest automobile related air pollution uh, because we have businesses and industry and you know people drive and you know live across the street from a uh, from a large parking garage and uh, and there's a, a bus traffic and and um, uh, truck traffic uh, diesel truck traffic um, so I am exposed to a lot of pollution and I actually I do believe that that I, that I'm having health effects uh, because of that. I'm the first person in my family to have asthma. Uh, got it when I was, uh, yeah, when I was in my forties. Um, mm. uh, and I'm the first person in my family to have coronary artery disease. I started getting angina. I was, I was, after I stopped my environmental justice, I decided that I was going to try to become healthier and lost, you know, lost 30 pounds and, and started exercise routine. Uh, yeah. And then one day I was walking past the hospital and then all of a sudden I feel a chest tightness. So I'm pulling in on, on me and I said, hmm. And I said, hmm, I wonder if that's what I think it is. And then so I stopped. Uh, the chest tightness went away and I went on my walk and, and that was fine. Then the next day uh, I went on a walk again. And in exactly the same location in front of the hospital, uh, <laughs> I started feeling uh, chest tightness um, again. And so I stopped and said, ah. Don't yeah, wait for the third time. Right. Yeah, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to wait for the third time. So I called my doctor. They did um, uh, uh, did stress tests, you know, and I found that I have four-vessel heart disease. Um, there are only mm. four vessels in the heart. Uh, so I had four vessel um, heart disease. Uh, they put in two stints, you know, and, and began uh, therapy. And, you know, and like I said, pe nobody else in my, you know, in my uh, parents generation and my aunts or uncle, nobody else that I know of has had cor coronary artery disease, um, right. you know, and heart attacks from from that. Um, you know, our cholesterol has been low anyway. So, so I believe that it has to do with the air pollution because that's what it shows. It shows that air pollution, uh, ozone particularly, uh, and particulates, uh, increase the, uh, heart disease as well as respiratory disease and, and asthma. Um, right. and so, so that's. And you've been in Hartford a pretty long time. We'll yeah, talk yes, about that, but. It's been like 30 years now. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 30 years. No, is that right? It was, uh, anyway, um, uh, 25, at least 25 years. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that about uh, your health. About Hartford, living in Hartford? No. <laughs> yes, my condolences. No, not at all. <laughs> Yeah, no. actually, when I moved here, people said, uh, <laughs> said, you know, you're not going to like it here, but but it'll grow on you. And so that's what <laughs> It's kind of an odd welcome. It's sort of a welcome. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so are, are those posters online by any chance? Yes, yes. They're on our website, uh, the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. Um, you can look it up. It's uh, docs for climate, F-O-R, climate. 
does for, for climate. And so, yeah, you can look that up and, and um, find the posters. And, you know, you can find a lot of really good information on climate and health equity. We Part of the things that I did there is, you know, we launched an equity section um, of our website. So if people are interested in how they can become anti-racist, you know, uh, what kinds of things they can do, uh, how they can recognize white supremacy and 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 how they can r- recognize systemic racism and what they can do about it there are a bunch of resources on there books and videos and and um uh and and other other things uh, so that's combined so, with the climate equity justice issues it's sort of right you're right. you're you're providing core information on both sides of that Yes, yes, uh, Both, climate yeah. and health and equity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those three things uh, combined is, is what we what we focus on. So um, so the Medical Society Consortium is made up of 39 medical societies, uh, physicians, organizations, national and state and some state. But, you know, the American Medical Association, the National Medical Association, the, you know, American, uh, Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. So it's, um, representing about two thirds of all physicians in the United States. And then in addition to that, we have affiliates, uh, which are organizations that are uh, public health of, uh, organizations or of other health professionals like, you know, nursing organizations, uh, PA organizations, et cetera. And so we've got about um, 60 of those and representing, you know, millions of healthcare workers. So in addition to our medical societies and our affiliates, uh, we have, uh, we've started organizing in the states. And so I'm the director of state affairs uh, for the medical society. And so what, what we do is we, we've been launching two or three new states every year of health professionals, uh, not just physicians, but all health professionals uh, to uh, use their voice, to teach them uh, how to use their voice uh, about uh, climate and health, uh, how to influence policy on climate and health on a state, local, and federal level. So we now have 18 states, and, yeah, and two in formation that that we are doing. So what we do is we provide them with the infrastructure and opportunities to engage, you know, given their limited time, but to use their expertise and their voice to do things like write op-eds, you know, trainings on speaking to the media, you know, working with local environmental justice groups, uh, how to, and, 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 and how, and when to weigh in on the federal level, um, on federal policy, you know, right. uh, opportunities to, to join with meetings with e- EPA and, and other organizations. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you're that you haven't, I assume, been able to travel much for that work. In normal times, in pre-COVID times, there would have been at least some visiting the states. Or so yes, how yeah. how how does organizing go without the travel? Right. So um, yeah, it, it's certainly different. You know, I, I think it's more more an issue for the states themselves in not being able mm-hmm. to have uh, in-person conferences and and meetings. But um, uh, you know, but we have been doing things, a lot of things, you know, by. Uh, over the internet, uh, uh, you know, we we have been providing materials, um, briefing materials, uh, policy materials, and you know, ideas on uh, how to launch a a state organization. On we, you know, we just launched in New Hampshire, uh, for example, and then uh, and then again, you know, we're 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 training them on how to engage with environmental justice. So they have identified an NAACP in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, so we're working with, with them and, you know, they're uh, training them how to um, survey their community and, and, and how in, in our uh, state level physicians and nurses uh, can provide education uh, to them about, you know, the links between um, uh, environmental exposures like 
like uh, uh, trash incineration and asthma or uh, even things like link between I don't know, uh, landfills, um, nail polish, nail salons. Um, one time I remember we, we met with a uh, community group uh, here in uh, Hartford. And they said, well, you know, this is a planning meeting. We need to uh, plan uh, economic development, you know. So, um, so what would you say is a growing industry that you can build on um, here? Uh, well, we uh, we have lots of churches. I said, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, churches are important. Uh, we have uh, nail salons and beauty parlors. I said, yeah, those are businesses. Yeah, we can build. <laughs> anyway, it was very interesting, the things that they came up with. And as they're growing industries and telling, you know, uh, what what they think about as the the growing industries and the exposures that they get from, you know, from those types of, of um, uh, facilities. Definitely from the nail salons. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like doctors generally are. Uh, they're very interested. So uh, we started actually, we started the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. Uh, I was at an American Public Health Association meeting and I met um, a physician, Dr. Um, Mona Sarfati, and she um, wanted to, uh, she wanted to investigate, do some research to find out whether uh, climate which was predicted to affect health was already affecting health. This was in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, so she asked us, she asked me uh, to work with the National Medical Association. And, you know, she asked whether we would be willing to do a survey. Um, so we did, we conducted the first um, uh, national survey of a physician's organization on whether we were seeing the health effects of climate. And so the results were that 88% of our docs were already seeing patients who they thought were affected by climate change hmm. uh, and whose health they thought was affected by climate change. And they, they also um, said that they were very interested, that they thought that it was part of medical practice, uh, that they wanted to educate uh, they, they felt that it was their duty uh, to educate their patients, but also the public uh, about the health effects of climate change, but that they didn't have enough information, that they needed more education themselves on this um, before they could speak to to that. And they also said that they, they thought that it was uh, important that they educate policymakers, you know, that in order to improve the you know, health of their patients, uh, that they should try to change policies, you know, to reduce greenhouse gases and, and to build resilience against the, the uh, climate changes that they're seeing the, the, um, by both uh, ad adaptation, you know, pr uh, pr preparation, planning, um, but also, you know, they're seeing uh, even more direct um, health uh, effects. So, so that's what we launched the Medical Society Consortium on, on uh, climate and health um, in 2016 to address these issues. That's really interesting. And only I wanted. There's so much to talk about, but one other question about this: How are the doctors responding to the equity part of the message? Uh, does that resonate, or is that a little harder? No, it actually does. I've been uh, very pleased at, at um, you know, we decided that, that each of our states, we were going to require that in order to be a state affiliate, uh, that they would need to incorporate equity. And they are thrilled um, at it. They, they keep trying, you know, they keep asking for more and more. And so we keep providing them with more about, you know, which policies are more equitable and again, how to, how health professionals can work with environmental justice uh, and other grassroots organizations. They're, they're like I said, they're, they're very, very interested in, in, in what, you know, because they see the you know, the disparities, the health disparities, and the right. health disparities are magnified by climate change. And so they understand that and, and they see as an obligation that they do that. And so, you know, most of our, uh, most of our states, honestly, are uh, conservative states or 
uh, or we have swing states, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, but even there, they're very interested in, in how they can work with, uh, to, to address, um, equity, uh, health equity at the same time that they're addressing climate change. That sounds like a very important and effective approach <laughs> and very, very much needed. Yeah. I, I'm so, like I said, I'm so thrilled, you know, that, uh, when when I first started in environmental justice, uh, there was very little focus on on, on this, and, you know, and um, uh, you know, and and the reason I went into medicine was to address uh, racism and systemic racism and and um, uh, health disparities. Uh, I was going to say you, you bring so much to that particular position of state director because you've. As we'll talk about, you've worked in state health or uh, state health departments uh, or city health departments, but within a state and city structure. And you've got a public health background, uh, a medical background, and the public health background. So the kind of the survey pieces and things like that. It's just such a great fit, and the organizing uh, and policy chops <laughs> from from. Uh, Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we launched that. And then we, uh, you know, then I had to spend a lot of time on policy, both on the local level and state level. We, you know, we passed our first um, environmental justice law, and, and which was really, really difficult, particularly because people would not tell me why they didn't like it. Uh, (laughs) You know, people thought, uh, legislators thought if they discuss racism, then they will be seen as racist. Uh, Mm. And, um, you know, and so they wouldn't say. Yeah, I think it just depends on what you say, right? It's the the content, not. Yeah, yeah, it's the content. And, you know, and they had, you know, you know, probably. Uh, 70, 80% of their concerns were legitimate. Uh, and if they had told us about it, we could have changed it. But mm-hmm. they were, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so before we talk about that, let's go back just just to the beginning. Where were you born, Mark? <laughs> so actually, I was born in St. Louis. Um, I uh, grew up uh, in a... Uh, when I I grew up, well, when I was seven years old um, in second grade, uh, we moved from a mixed, uh, racially mixed neighborhood to an all-white neighborhood in the suburbs next to Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, mm-hmm. We were the only black family within uh, five miles of where we lived, and like when we moved in, uh, they you know they were building houses, and my uh, parents selected. There's a big long story, but uh, they selected a house where nobody had had um, bought on either side, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and it turned out that the builder who um, was building about 500 homes um, sent letters to all of the other people who bought and told them that there was a black family moving in and that they could have their money back uh, if they wanted. <laughs> right. Whoa! Uh, what uh, what but, year is that? This was, was that uh, was that in 1862 or when? <laughs> uh, 1964. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. And it was for those of you who are into policy. Uh, this was before the housing rights law in '68. Uh, right. This was because right. of an executive um, uh, direct directive of uh, President Kennedy in December of 1960. Uh, he uh, said that that uh, uh, federal contractors could no longer discriminate uh, in housing. And so my parents and a lot of with a lot of help from a lot of people, you know, identified the largest uh, builder and challenged him. And after a lot of there, it's a long story, but it was a very interesting story. Uh, but uh, we're eventually allowed to buy because of the the executive order. And um, why did they want to move there? Was it more to you know deliberately to try and promote integration in a sense, or no, no? It was because it was cheaper, better housing, better quality housing, uh, better yeah. schools. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, just like, yeah, like everybody else was <laughs> like everybody else. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, but once I got there, when I found out that, uh, you know, in, in my 
classroom, they, uh, the teacher one day asked people, you know, how many of you uh, have parents who uh, graduated from high school? You know, and so about half of the uh, students raised their hands. Uh, how many of you have uh, a father who uh, graduated from college? A quarter. How many of you have a father who was a master's degree? It was just me and one other student. Uh, how many of you have a mother who was a college graduate? Uh, there was me and one other student. Uh, how many of you have a mother who was a master's? Just me. You know. So I said, well, my parents worked so hard and uh, and got all of this education to be at the level of other um, uh, high school or, or less graduates. Uh, and so, you know, that's the way it is. What did your parents do? So my my. My father was a uh, high school teacher and counselor, and in you know, and he worked in the inner city. My mother was a medical records librarian, and mm -hmm. she worked in different hospitals. Uh, but both of them had wanted to be, uh, you know, to be in the medical field. Uh, right. My father had wanted to be a doctor, but uh, but he couldn't. He didn't have the financial backing, and you know, and and um, uh, but you know, and so they had the best careers that they could have had, uh, given right. their their uh, background. And and do you have siblings? I have three sisters. Yeah, my older sister works used to work for the airline. She's retired. One worked for the post office, uh, and one worked in. Um, has her own business in uh, wholesale label making in California. Okay, so say more about your experience growing up in that part of St. Louis, because I okay. know it's... Right. So so I faced a lot of racism uh, as I was a young child. Um, uh, you know, I was seven years old. My mother, you know, we'd do things like uh, uh, collect money for March of Dimes and, and, you know, or go help my sister sell um, uh, Girl Scout cookies door to door. And women who were twice my size would be scared of me, you know. What, 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 why are you here? What, what, what do you want? I said, no, 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 no. I said, well, I, I haven't asked you yet. Uh, you know, would you please give us a dime for the March of Dime? You know, no, no, no. And, and I was trying to figure out why people were so scared of me. What did I do? Um, and, and then people started, you know, calling me names. You know, you know, there would be school buses going by and people would yell out the window names and and i didn't mm -hmm. at first i didn't know what what they were doing why why you know was it are they after me and you know i don't know these people uh you know why are they yelling and what do they mean and so i um uh so it was really tough you know uh to to be there and i and you know so i i was uh depressed a lot of my uh childhood because of that trying to figure out why uh, why people didn't like me, what I could do to fit in, and and um, you know, and nothing I tried um, seemed to to work. Um, so I uh, ended up focusing on my studies and and um, you know, proving mm. that you know that I could get the best grades and that I could be, uh, despite whatever the reasons that they hated me. So then, in high school, one day I woke up. And I said, uh, I can't say it on here. Uh, I said, forget it. <laughs> no, you can actually. Podcast, you can. Go ahead and say it. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I woke up one, and I said to myself one day, I said, well, fuck it all. I said, I've been trying all my life to please everybody. And, um, uh, and there's nothing that I can do to make people happy. So I might as well hmm. make myself happy uh, and do what I want to do and do what I think is, is right. And so, so then I, I just said, you know, I don't care about what other people think about me. And then I started becoming popular. Uh, it was very surprising to me, as I said. Um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I would hang out in the, um, in the 
you know, I would be in the cafeteria, you know, and there would be always be the groups of, of um, different people, you know, there'd be the jocks and the, uh, and the um, uh, intellectuals and the, um, and the snobs and the, and the druggies and the, uh, you know, thespians and, 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 and the black. <laughs> All recognizable cohorts. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, well, you know, I don't feel like I fit in with any of them very well, so I might as well fit in with all of them. So I'm going to go from group to group every day uh, to a different group and, and start talking to them and and um, uh, and sort of see. <laughs> so that's what I started doing. And then so uh, it's uh, people who didn't fit in started being attracted to me. Uh, and so, you know, people that nobody else had the patience to listen to um uh they would all, they would come to me and they'd start talking and i mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know and um uh you know and i uh, would recognize them and say that you know and so then um i also created the black student union well it it, it had been in existence off and on uh, previously but then i uh, helped to revive the the black student union and you know, and I started challenging you know things, uh, uh, some of the uh, racist kinds of things. But I sort sort of, I I you know I said well, there's a need for a group where I can feel like I'm not always under scrutiny, where where people aren't always trying to find what I am doing wrong, um, right? Uh, and you know, and that they will accept me for what I am, and you know. Um, so, so I started the Black Student Union uh, and, and invigorated it, but then I wanted to address uh, policies that I in the school that I thought were unfair, and so we we did that both for the um, uh, black students, but mostly more generally, you know, uh, for all students uh, that that, and so in my junior year, they created a position for me in the student council. And I was quite surprised. I said, <laughs> you know, I'm not here trying to, to try to get popular. I'm just doing what the the right thing, <laughs> you know. And so, and, uh, and so uh, that was sort of <laughs> that's that's quite a right. turnaround. It, it was quite a turnaround. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, very- based on your epiphany. Yeah, <laughs> your your which is which is it's incredible that you had that realization at such a young age, right? Like some people never have that. Right. Right. So because people because they fit in, you know, because people either fit in or they give up mm. uh, uh, trying to fit in. Um, and, you know, right. And, you know, but I decided that I was going to focus on changing uh, on changing the world to make it, you know, uh, it was clear to me that the world was unfair. Uh, yeah. And that but but that I I thought that you know, that I could work with people to make things more fair. And I had, you know, started having success at doing that and started getting popular because I was doing that, <laughs> because I was challenging uh, the unfairness of, of it all. So, so. So that's around, that's the early 70s. That's around 74 or 75. Very good, very good at math. Uh, don't tell people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't tell anybody. That's that's the <laughs> yeah, limits of my math. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I decided to that I would uh, focus on my my life on fighting racism and doing what I can to uh, mm-hmm. to correct you know the injustice of of it all. But I had from the age of five, I had decided that I wanted you know uh, a challenge and to to you know and uh, again as i grew older uh, to sort of prove myself that i that i was uh, just as good as everybody else um, who who didn't like me so i decided that i was going to become a doctor at the age of 5 or 6 uh, uh, uh <laughs> you're precocious mark <laughs> yeah 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 uh, so <laughs> So, you know, so I decided I was going to go to this high school. Um, you know, by the time I was eight, I decided I was going to go to this high school. And then, um, you know, 
because you know it was the uh, toughest in the city, and it was you know more more likely to you know uh, college prep and and that kind of stuff. In my senior year, my mother came to me and said that there's this uh, new medical school that just opened in Kansas City that's taking uh, students out of when they, uh, out of high school, you know, when they graduate from high school, and you know it's a six six year program. Uh, coming out of high school, so why don't you apply? And I said, well, I don't know if I want to do all of that stuff. And I said, well, you know, might as well, you know, have a guaranteed um, spot. And uh, so I I did that. So I applied and I and I made it in. And so you know, moved to Kansas City, at eighteen, and started making rounds in the hospital. Um, you know, uh, yeah, they they had like um, one class a week, uh, like two hours a week, uh, where you would be matched with a, a docent who would, where you'd be observing, you know, you wouldn't be um, treating people, but uh, you'd be observing and discussing uh, medical issues, you know, while you're still taking chemistry 101 and, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how did you like uh, living in Kansas City as a Oh, I loved Kansas City. It, you know, Kansas City is a western city. Uh, St. Louis is an eastern city. You know, St. Louis is uh, brick and and densely populated, and and you know, and Kansas City is newer and more spread out, and and um, uh, a more laid back even than than St. Louis is. And so it's it it it's really really uh, interesting. Uh, the differences are really really interesting. Do you still have a connection there? Do you go back ever, or is it? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I go back there periodically, and I'm trying to organize uh, doctors in Kansas City, Missouri, to uh, to form uh, in St. Louis to form a um, our a state affiliate of our medical society consortium on climate and health. Um, and so, and so, I went back and I actually gave a talk. You know, gave I was a visiting professor. Um, at my medical school in Kansas City. So after I graduated from medical school and I finished my residency, I went back to Kansas City and uh, was the deputy director of the health department. So I, I lived there for six years and, and was able to do a lot there uh, in Kansas City. Again, addressing health disparities. Uh, we were I was able to work with the community health centers uh, to reduce the high blood pressure rates and the um, mm. heart disease rates actually went down. There was uh, no disparity between blacks and whites uh, after four years. Uh, the hypertension rate was lower in, in blacks or, uh, than it was in whites and the heart disease rates were the same um, after four years. Uh, but that was because of invest. I think it's because of investment and organizing and, you know, and continued, um, you know, funding of, of specific targeted programs. Uh, so, you know, I, I truly believe the targeted programs uh, to address health disparities and systemic racism can work. Uh, that's been my experience. So what were those programs doing? Was that bringing, you know, um, treatment and I don't know if it's making more medication kind of thing available, or is it just the the being able to see a doctor more easily? Or it, it was uh, about health education. It was about uh, cult culturally appropriate health education and access to medical mm -hmm. care um, combined. Um, so. Uh -huh. You know, getting the screenings. We had lots of health fairs. We had lots of, you know, cooking classes with uh, culturally appropriate uh, foods and, you know, in our Latino and African American communities and, and, you know, saying that, that it's not that hard to change your diet. This is what you do. You know, you can, you know, your greens can be healthy, your, your, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it was the, the culturally appropriate. Uh, education. It was communication by trusted leaders in the community. It was making it easy to engage. You know, there weren't barriers, uh, cost barriers, and insurance barriers uh, because the community health centers opened up, and the, you know they were the ones who were sponsoring it. They had the trust. They had the relationships. They had anyway. So, so that I think that that's 
why it worked. But we did lots of other stuff. We had a homicide prevention uh, program that worked, uh, was able to reduce the violent arrest rate by 50% after six months. It, it, yeah, the, the nonviolent arrest rates stayed the same, uh, but the violent arrest rates uh-huh. uh, um, dropped by 50% uh, in six months after, you know, 10 hours of training uh, of people who were involved in violence, either in schools or, or in, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it was from, I think, from 16 to 25 year olds. So we just had lots of programs uh, that that were, you know, I, I had the ability, the freedom to, you know, I, I'm, I grew up in this culture, uh, you know, even though I grew up in the suburbs, right. my, the rest of my family lived in the inner cities. And so every weekend, mm-hmm. uh, you know, be in the inner cities and, and running with my uh, cousins and, and, you know, and, you know, know the culture, the language, the, you know, and so I, I would have to switch you know, a uh, culture switch, you know, from, from one culture to the other. Uh, and um, uh, so I, you know, knew how to talk to uh, different kinds of people uh, at different levels and, you know, and had the, anyway. So, so those are, you know, you know, and that's something you can't learn, you know, you can't learn in school. Right? <laughs> yeah. But. Um, well, actually, I just want to go back on one thing. So, the six year, I think you said six years, you basically got your college and medical degrees in that. Yes. Yeah. I got a, a, a degree in, in economics, a degree in, uh, a BA, a BA in economics, a BA in, um, biology and an MD, uh, in those, um, six years. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very active again, you know, uh, the student national medical association, the, um, um, you know, sitting on the selection board of the, uh, of the school, you know, working in the community on, on different, uh, things. And it was, um, uh, and I also, um, came out, you know, uh, as gay, uh, during that, um, uh, period of time. It was, uh, right. <laughs> um, anyway, it was, so right. much going on. You were, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm. I'm just admiring just your focus and energy and drive to accomplish and organize. Just from you know the very earliest part of your life is just really uh, notable. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I try to you know, stay focused and do you know and. and yeah, I, I'm more outcome oriented. Yeah, <laughs> outcome oriented. Yeah, I know a lot of people that, well, maybe today, maybe not, you know. <laughs> yep. Right. You're yeah. driven. And so your residency, what did you do? Like, how did you come to the public health focus? So when I was in medical school, one day I was in the library, uh, or, or I was in uh, one of my classes, and then after the class, uh, the professor came up to me and said, Mark, uh, can you meet me in the library? Um, I have something I want to talk to you uh, about. I said, what? And he says, well, yeah, I have something you might be interested in. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> so, so I go to the library um, the next day. We, we meet in the library. He says, um, I think that you might be interested in this career uh, called preventive medicine. I said, preventive medicine? You know, so I'm the biggest junk food junkie on the on campus. You know, <laughs> I said, what, you know, why would I want to? <laughs> I won't be practicing what I'll be preaching. Said, you know, what do you mean preventive medicine? <laughs> he says, well, it's not, it's not like that. You know, it's, um, uh, it's about policy and, and um, it's about populations and uh, and improving the health of populations instead of one patient at a time. He says, um, you know, let's look here in the books and find out who, which uh, physicians in, in Kansas City have um, master's in public health uh, degrees and are, uh, and are preventive medicine trained. So, you know, Kansas City is uh, one and a half, two million people. And there were only five preventive medicine trained physicians. You know, there are probably, I don't know, a, a thousand physicians to two thousand physicians. And there were only five, five that were public, uh, preventive medicine, uh, trained. And the nearest, uh, training programs were a thousand miles away. 
um, in Minnesota and in um, uh, Wisconsin and and in anyway and Chicago. Well, yeah, Chicago, I think. So, so I made an. He said, "Well, you know, go talk to some of these uh, docs." So I made an appointment with the uh, health director um, in Kansas City at that time. And we talked, and and um, he told me what what he does, and I really liked it, and and uh, um, and you know talked about policy, you know, uh, and I said, yeah, that that's what I like, and so that's so I went, uh, I, so you know you do a a clinical year internship, so I did my internship in Denver uh, in a family practice program, then um, I applied uh, for. The residency program at Johns Hopkins, which was a one-year master's in public health, and then one year of uh, practice. So I uh, went for an interview in uh, at Johns Hopkins, and um, and they were trying to convince me, you know, how important it was that I go there, and uh, you know, as I said, you know, you know, they they didn't pay. Uh, I, you know, so I would, I had to get a, a job to support myself, um, uh, moonlighting. And so I did that in the prisons. I worked in the prisons in, in Baltimore. Uh, and, and then while I was getting my master's in public health. And then, oh, anyway, so while I was there at the interview, the, uh, uh, secretary for the, the residency director who was interviewing me came in and said, Jonas Salk is on the, uh, is on the phone. And so, and, and so he said, well, <laughs> he said, well, tell him that I'm with a, a, a interviewing a resident uh, and that I will get back with him uh, when I can. And then he turns to me and says, oh, you know, those Nobel laureates, they're all the same. <laughs> you know, they, they just think that they can um, interrupt anything and that you're going to take a call. <laughs> And so, <laughs> that's right. amazing. And so, uh, so anyway, the, uh, so they right. take a message. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, I um, got into the program, and the program was very, very interesting. I, I never, and I appreciated a lot more after I graduate than I did while I was there. You know, they would be teaching you stuff, uh, and I said, well. This makes all the sense in the world. Why would you know? Why would you have to take a class to learn this? You know, this is uh, you know, it, you know, you know that that there's if there's a problem, then you need to focus on solving it, and you need to bring resources together to do that. Uh, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why am I wasting my time here? But it was very interesting in my. But after I graduated, I found out that. Things don't work like that in the real world. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. uh, that, right. you know, that if something in the world, real world, if you do something and it doesn't work, then that means that you have to do more of it and harder. <laughs> and then that's yes. how it's supposed to work. <laughs> yeah. Double, double down. down. <laughs> Whereas in, in, you know, in, um, uh, public health school, they tell you that if something that that you try multiple approaches and that uh, and multiple disciplines, and you don't rely on just what you know, you bring in other people who have different disciplines in order to get them to solve the problem that that you're that you're working on. <laughs> so it's teaching collaboration, it's, it's basically. Teaching. Yeah, in, in part, in and part. how to measure it, and yeah. how to uh, encourage it. So, preventive medicine has five basic sciences and three subspecialties. So, the ba- basic sciences are biostatistics, uh, epidemiology, behavioral science, policy, uh, health policy, and management, uh, and environmental health. Those are the basic sciences, and then. There are the specialties. So the specialties, so preventive medicine uh, is, again, population-based medicine. And so public health is one of the specialties. Um, Occupational health is a second. And then aerospace medicine, which includes underwater, underseas, and in the air medicine, you know, so that you know the different environmental exposures uh, to that. Um, So, so, So who knew that? You know, so there are only a few of us. And when I was coming through, um, there were very few uh, 
public health trained physicians. Um, now there are a lot more uh, public health trained trained physicians, mm-hmm. but it's a very different discipline. It, it teaches you how to look at at issues uh, from a systemic point of view, identifying people in different disciplines um, who can uh, help you to achieve whatever goals you, you set and how to measure that, etc. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the Johns Hopkins formative. Right. And what the other thing that I didn't appreciate was all of the connections uh, that I got, you know, uh-huh. so I would be in a class of, um, uh, of people and they say, well, you know, today we're going to talk about uh, primary care in the mountains of Cam- Cameroon. Uh, I looked at the person next to me. Where is Cameroon? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's in Africa. Uh, <laughs> and they'd be talking about Cameroon, Cameroon, and so. And then somebody else would say, "Yeah, yeah, that's uh, in the armpit of Africa. It's right there." Yeah. And then so they'd be talking about this this um, project. And then they would say, you know, and then we did this, and then we did that. We ran into this problem three months ago. I, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't been back, so I don't know. You know, I don't know what, how they solved it. But, you know, is there anybody here from Cameroon? So a couple of students would raise their hand, and they'd say, you know, we're from Cameroon. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and um, uh, but, you know, but we're not familiar with that project. And then somebody else would raise their hand and say, well, I'm not from Cameroon, but I was there last week, um, and this is what we did. <laughs> right. And so, you know, and you meet somebody else and, you know, where are you from? Oh, you know, I'm from uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, well, what do you do in Zimbabwe? Well, I'm the uh, deputy minister of health. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. That's nice. <laughs> Well, I graduated from UMKC. Casey. <laughs> and so, um, you know, so we talk and we oh get to God. know each other and, and um, you know, and they were wonderful people. And then, uh, you know, once you got to be friends with them, they'd say, well, you know, the uh, prime minister of Zimbabwe is visiting uh, D.C., and, you know, we're going to have a little party for him up here in Baltimore. Uh, do you want to come? You know, I said, yeah, of course. I said, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, so there, it was such an experience. And, you know, and all of the, the people who were involved there are the movers and shakers, you know, of, of that. You know, uh, Monday I had a, a call with the, HRSA, uh, and one of the people on the HRSA call was a classmate of mine, you know, from Johns Hopkins, you know, it, it, you know, the, anyway, just lots of connections. So that was wonderful. Well, and it's, it's one of the major public health schools, right? Or. Yeah. Particularly for international health. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, the, yeah, it's the, you know, some people rank it as number one. I do, uh, public health school, but I'm a bit biased. Right. But um, uh, but particularly for, you know, for international health, you know, they used to say, you know, I would talk to people, you know, where some of the professors, you know, can we meet uh, on Friday? So, oh, no, I've got to go to Geneva on Friday. You know, he says, you know, that World Health Organization, they can never get anything right. You know, you know, they always it. So it was just, you know, so there were lots of. Uh, opportunities to get into pa, uh, to to uh, international public health. Right. Okay. So you so you you graduated from there, and then and then you went back to Kansas City. That's when you took the uh, health department. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, well, as part of my my final year at Johns Hopkins, uh, it was supposed to be a practicum year, and we were supposed to spend the time uh, at the American University in Beirut, Lebanon. But then uh, the big war broke out, a civil war broke out, and so we weren't able to do that. And so they were, they were trying to scrambling, try to figure things for us to do. And so, you know, I said, well, I know what I want to do. Um, so um, I will create rotations that will help me in the future. So I will 
so um, I might want to work in Kansas City. So I want to do uh, health administration in Kansas City. I might want to work in Denver. Um, so I will do a uh, epidemiology in Denver. Uh, the first day I got there, they said, well, you know, we don't really know if anything's going to happen. Uh, but then there was an outbreak of um, uh, hepatitis A uh, that affect, wound up affecting uh, 50 children and, and 150 adults. And I was in charge of that. And, and I was the one put in front of the cameras and quoted in the newspaper uh, about that outbreak. Anyway, uh, so, so yeah. then I also... A fortuitous, yeah, a fortuitous outbreak, outbreak of hepatitis yeah, I didn't, A. I, I didn't cause it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty suspicious. Um, and then uh, I also then, uh, you know, since I had been working in prison, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I had, well, I had spent... No, before that, I went to HHS. Uh, I was trying to, again, trying to decide. So I spent uh, some time with the... That's Health and Human Services, just for people who don't know the acronym. But keep going. The Hippy Dippy HHS. So it's the Health Promotion... Oh, okay, good. ...and Disease Prevention uh, Office of uh, Health and Human Services. And so, you know, I... We worked on tobacco, anti-tobacco stuff, and and um, and then from that, I also went with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, Foundation and helped them to write up policies and to do stuff, and and um, then um, I went on to, and so this was 1984. Then I went on to, you know, after, then I graduated, went back to uh, Kansas City and started working a lot on uh, tobacco stuff um, in Kansas City. So we got the first or the at that time, the strongest uh, anti-smoking uh, law. There were people from the Tobacco Institute that, that flew to Kansas City to, to debate me in front of the um, ACLU, the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, about the tobacco ordinance and, and, you know, what it should be like. And so um, I organized community folks and organized other folks to uh, to pass that law. Actually, today, if you still go to the Kansas City airport, it'll say no smoking according to ordinance number XYZ. And that was the ordinance that we passed. Oh, uh, yeah. I was going to say that's very early, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. it? In the and I got, I and I got particularly you know upset at how they were targeting people of color uh, and women uh, yep. at that time. With was uh, they they had specialized cigarettes uh, for women. It was Virginia Slims, and for uh, African Americans, it was Uptown. And you know, and, mm-hmm. oh, I hadn't heard of Uptown, that. I've then, never, you know, and then of course they have uh, cool cigarettes and the, uh, all yeah, the menthol cools, yeah. Um, stuff. So let me fast forward to today. About four years ago, I get an email and saying, you know, saying, are you the Dr. Mitchell who was involved with the anti-smoking stuff? And I said, yes. And so, well, you know, we'd like to speak with you and interview you. So you get a, a call and said, well, you know, were you the one who wrote the, uh, the 1984 memo? I said, 1984 memo. <laughs> so I said, I'm sure. <laughs> so I said, they said, well, yes. I said, what 1984 memo? <laughs> right. Yeah, probably. Right. And they said, they said, well, the um, uh, the memo uh, to the Congressional Black Caucus about how they should stop distributing cigarettes, uh, uh, distributing cigarettes uh, at each place during their annual meeting. Um, <laughs> at each place setting for their gala, uh, um, at their annual meeting and, um, and how the industry is targeting African Americans, you know, and how they should stop taking money, uh, from the uh, tobacco industry. And I said, well, yes, I, I wrote that. Uh, but, you know, I wrote that to the executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And I never heard anything about it. And so I just thought that they just tore it up and, you know, because I was only there for six weeks and, and I was gone. And, you know, and I said, well, well, um, I said, well, where'd you get it? And they said, well, on the Internet. I said, well, the Internet wasn't invented <laughs> back in 1980. <laughs> I said, how did you get it off of the Internet? How did it get on the Internet? And they said, well, 
the state of Michigan uh, sued the Tobacco Institute and uh, they got a copy of it and they put it on the internet. And I said, well, I've never been to Michigan. You know, I, I wasn't working in Michigan at that time. Um, how did the state of Michigan get it? Well, they sued the Tobacco Institute and, the two, and during discovery, they had to provide them with those documents. So how did the Tobacco Institute get my, get my memo? Right. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so they said, well, um, the Congressional Black Caucus had a meeting about it and they said that they should send, that they should get the other side from the Tobacco Institute. So they sent a copy of it to the Tobacco Institute. And then, uh, a month later, the Tobacco Institute <laughs> says, you know, we don't really know that tobacco causes cancer, you know, um, and, you know, we're, uh, and, you know, and we don't know what causes people to smoke and, and, you know, and, um, um so yeah, we, we, you know, let's, let's just see, you know, <laughs> and so. So there's a group of, of about three people who are tobacco, uh, black tobacco historians. Uh, <laughs> yes. And so there's a new generation, uh, of, um, anti tobacco, uh, activists, uh, black anti tobacco activists, uh, who are, and so now I'm part of, uh, these lawsuits, uh, bringing in the National Medical Association, uh, to, uh, to spot, to, to co-sponsor these lawsuits, uh, and, uh, 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 Amikai Brief and, and to do all of this stuff, uh, on tobacco, on something, yeah. on, on a memo that I wrote as an intern that I thought was thrown in the trash. <laughs> so you never know. So I, I tell young people all the time, you never know uh, what kind of an impact and when you will have an impact uh, on something that you did. I just remember when I wrote it, I said, you know, I was, I was very nervous, uh, you know, and I said, you know, I don't want to offend uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, and you know, but but it's important, and we, you know, we need to to do uh, to do this anyway. So <laughs> that's another. <laughs> right. I have lots of them. That is an incredible story. <laughs> that's an amazing story. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast. Podcast.